So to fill up each tank took, and there are 300 tanks, took 13 tanker truck trips to fill each tank. So quick math says 3,900 tanker truck trips to bring this water up the mountain. And we spent probably $600,000 trucking water up the mountain. Hello, and welcome to Relatively Certain, a new podcast about the latest research news straight from scientists at the University of Maryland. I'm your host for the week, Chris Caesar. For our first episode, we're going to learn why all those tanker trucks were carrying water up a mountain. And we're going to start in an unlikely place by shifting our gaze toward the stars, toward a sky that's busier than it might look. No, I don't mean satellites or UFOs. Every second, millions of invisible particles rain down on us from space. There are countless electrons, the tiny charged particles that orbit the nucleus of an atom, and photons, little packets of light. They're all that remains of high-energy particles from space that smash into the Earth's atmosphere and break apart. It's these things, the particles from space, that many astrophysicists spend their days thinking about. Well, uh, I'm Jordan Goodman. I'm a uh, distinguished university professor here at the University of Maryland, and I have... uh, Goodman is a particle astrophysicist, meaning he studies some of the most energetic processes in the universe and the particles that they produce. He's leading a search that promises to create the clearest picture yet of the universe's most active particle hotspots, the places that fling a menagerie of high-energy particles toward Earth. Among the most energetic and mysterious particles in this zoo are the cosmic rays, many of which are the nuclei of elements like hydrogen or helium. No one really knew where cosmic rays came from when they were first discovered in the early 1900s. Nowadays, scientists know a bit more, but they still have some big blind spots. People have been observing them for a little over 100 years, uh, which is a really long time on the scale of things, and yet we don't know where the highest energy cosmic rays come from. Goodman and a group of dozens of collaborators from the US, Mexico, and Europe have teamed up to build Hawk. that's Hawk with a C, the High Altitude Water Cherenkov Observatory. More on all that in a bit. It's an array of hundreds of huge water tanks on a mountain that searches for the origins of the cosmic rays. But there's a problem. Those cosmic rays that smash into the atmosphere, they don't really tell you anything about where they came from. Because most of the cosmic rays we observe, especially the really, really high energy ones, are charged particles. And charged particles are bent in the magnetic field of the galaxy, so they don't point back to where they come from. All this bending and bouncing matters a lot if you want to learn about the origins of cosmic rays. Luckily, there is a stand-in, something that scientists think is created in the same neighborhood as the cosmic rays, in collisions between particles moving at extremely high speeds, something that travels to us pretty much in a straight line. Light. And not just any light. It's light that reaches us as high-energy photons called gamma rays. These gamma rays sit at the furthest end of the electromagnetic spectrum. That's the energy scale of different kinds of light, from low-energy radio waves through visible light, higher-energy X-rays, and finally, gamma rays. Goodman thinks about it like a highway. I describe the electromagnetic spectrum like Route 1 out here in College Park. Okay, it, it runs from Maine to Florida, 
And although the temperature is different, the environment, it's the same crappy road from one place to another. Okay, it just, you know, and it's got the same car dealerships. It just got a little different characteristic because of the temperature. And so the electromagnetic spectrum is kind of that way. We give it different names in different places. The gamma rays that Goodman studies are among the most energetic in the universe, with way more energy packed into a single photon than anything on Earth can produce. That includes nuclear reactors and the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland, which hurls protons together at nearly the speed of light. The extraordinary energy of gamma rays produced in the LHC pales in comparison to gamma rays with a cosmic origin. What sets the scale? Why can't they produce energies, you know, 100 times higher at the Large Hadron Collider? And the reason is uh, basically money. Uh, I mean, so the problem is, is that to contain particles, to accelerate them, you have to hold them around. And to hold them around, we have to have magnetic fields to keep them in place while we ramp them up their energy. And so using the most powerful magnets you can make in the world, which are these superconducting magnets, and extending the magnets in a ring around Geneva, Switzerland, that tells you the maximum energy you can get based on the radius and the magnetic field, that product. So if you wanted to go up another factor of 100 higher in energy, we can't make magnets now that are 100 times more powerful. They just, we don't have the technology, they don't exist. So, and we don't have the money to make it 100 times bigger. But someplace in space, there's somebody with a really big budget. These intergalactic particle colliders maybe nurseries for cosmic rays and gamma rays. They're places like the disk of debris spiraling into a supermassive black hole or the remnant shell of an exploded star. Hawk is like a new pair of glasses that brings these extreme environments into focus. By keeping an eye out for gamma rays, researchers can pinpoint the spots in the sky that are producing high energy particles. But how do you catch a speeding gamma ray anyway? A gamma ray won't make it through our atmosphere. Important point. A gamma ray will not make it to the ground. As soon as a gamma ray gets near atoms in the atmosphere, it splits apart, creating more particles and more gamma rays. These go on to smash into other atoms and create yet more particles and more gamma rays, cascading into a shower that roughly traces out the shape of a cone. So starting with a single photon, you can produce a shower of particles that has maybe anywhere from a million to 10 million particles all moving at the speed of light, coming down through the atmosphere. And eventually they start, each of these things gets lower and lower in energy, and eventually it doesn't have enough energy to produce more of these things, and then the shower starts to die out. And it will typically go from pretty much the top of the atmosphere down to, you know, some make it to sea level, but at mountain altitude, you can detect quite a few particles from these things. And on a mountain is just where Goodman and the Hawk collaboration chose to build their observatory, to constantly scan the sky for these showers recording how much energy they have and the direction they come from. Dan Fiorino is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Maryland who analyzes that data to create maps of the gamma ray sky. In many ways, Fiorino says, Hawk is like a telescope, only it's not a long tube or an array of radio dishes. So the, the detector that comprises the Hawk Observatory is 300 of these semi-truck trailer-sized water tanks. And um, the total area is about um, a little bit, about a football field and a, by a football field and a half. This big grid of water tanks is nestled in the clouds, almost 14,000 feet above the nearby Mexican city of Puebla. It's a challenging place to build a massive scientific instrument, especially one with so much water. Temperatures hover just above freezing there. 
So that's really nice because we have 300 water tanks and we don't want them to constantly freeze and thaw. So how does all that water let scientists spot gamma rays? When a shower of particles happens to fall on Hawk, and actually this happens about 20,000 times a second, individual particles in that shower fly into the water tank. Many of them are going so fast that they actually break the speed limit of light and water. The effect is a lot like what happens when an airplane breaks the sound barrier and creates a sonic boom. Particles that travel through water faster than light create a shock wave. But instead of a wave of sound, like a sonic boom, they leave behind a cone of light in their wake. This afterglow is called Cherenkov light, and it's where Hawk gets its sea. Detectors at the bottom of each tank capture some of this Cherenkov light, recording the time it hits with the precision of a few nanoseconds. Computers collect the signals from all 300 water tanks, and software checks to see if the signals match up with the size and shape of a gamma ray shower. If they do, the order in which the tanks light up tells scientists what direction a gamma ray was traveling when it hit the atmosphere. Fiorino sifts through this data to make plots for regions of the sky, essentially a cosmic fingerprint for different gamma ray sources. That is our bread and butter, sort of, and we call these spectra. So these are basically how many and at what energy. And the shape of these curves tells you a lot about the physics that's going on inside of these sources. Fiorino says that in addition to known sources, Hawk should be able to spot really elusive events that flash gamma rays on short cosmic timescales, sometimes over the course of just minutes. Astrophysicists call these gamma ray bursts. And these have become very popular in the last 15 years because the energy output by them is just incredible. Um, if a gamma ray burst happened in our local neighborhood, so um, you know, in the nearest, the nearest uh, solar systems, we'd be completely wiped out. <laughs> thing would take us out. So um, not a good early warning system. No. <laughs> with Hawk. Hawk would, Hawk would see it, and we would all perish at the same time. <laughs> it, would be, it would be great for science, but... The whole process creates mountains of data, nearly two terabytes, each day. Something that Goodman says offers a special challenge to an experiment built on a remote mountain. To get the data from Mexico is interesting, too. Because although there is an internet connection that goes, runs down the mountain, when it gets to the little town of Atacintla, I'm pretty convinced it's a guy with a cell phone that connects it to the internet at that point, you know, and an old cell phone at that. And so what we, we can't move this amount of data from the mountain directly. So what we do is we actually write the data in the little town of, of Atacintla. We store it on the site, we write it at the site, and we copy it over our optical fiber uh, in Atacintla to portable disk arrays. So they're kind of the size of a large toaster maybe three times the size of a toaster, that'll hold 30 terabytes of data, fill it up halfway once a week, and then we drive it, the technician drives it to Mexico City, where he plugs it into the computers in Mexico City, and they store it on the computers in Mexico City, and then we suck it out over the internet too from Mexico City. We have a gigabit connection to the University of Maryland. Along with Goodman and Fiorino, dozens of other researchers helped to crunch all that data. But beyond that official group of core team members, Goodman says that Hawk has agreements in place with other gamma-ray observatories and even LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. In 2016, LIGO announced that it had made the first direct detection of gravitational waves, distortions in space and time that Einstein predicted 100 years ago. In some cases, scientists expect that the huge astrophysical processes creating those distortions could also make lots of gamma rays. And we can go and look for LIGO events 
that happen in our field of view and see if we see the gamma rays that go with it. Although Hawk hasn't corroborated anything yet, Goodman says that the beauty of the experiment is its extensive archive of data. You know, someone could say something happened yesterday at this spot in the sky, and we have data. We don't have to point at it. I mean, it's, if, it was, if it was overhead for us, we were looking, and we have the data. Hawk itself even puts out astronomical telegrams, inviting other observatories to check on an area of the sky where Hawk has noticed gamma ray activity. But for now, Hawk is wrapping up its first two years or so of data collection and is gearing up to publish the early results of its search. So we're pretty excited about the way Hawk is, is operating. It's, it's, it's working up to its design, and in some cases a little bit better. There are a few things we could still improve somewhat. We're still working on some things, you know. So it's a really nice regime, and it's great to be able to have an experiment that is producing exciting science and lots of people working on it. Many thanks this week to Jordan Goodman and Dan Fiorino for their help explaining the main science goals of Hawk. Thanks also to Cole LaRiviere, another Hawk member, for helpful discussions. You can find out more about Hawk by visiting hawk-observatory.org. That's H-A-W-C-observatory.org. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new podcast, this time about computational complexity theory and the limits of what computers can, well, compute. For relatively certain, this is Chris Caesar. We have um, an incredible amount of lightning strikes, actually. So we have lightning happening all the time above us because we're, we're up in the clouds. And the electromagnetic pulse that comes from lightning um, actually can interfere with our electronics. So it can cause this weird phenomena, and we've been studying it for years, and we've, we've mostly mitigated it by this point, where what happens is this pulse comes in, some of our electronics interpret it as data and just go crazy. So the rates go high. Oh, we're seeing a ton of cosmic rays, but no, we're not. It's just flipping bits and doing funny things. So we shut, shut the detector off for a minute or something like that, turn it back on.